welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Susan Hawk. Her new book is titled Evidence Matters, Science, Proof, and Truth in the Law. It has just been published by Cambridge University Press. Hawk is Distinguished Professor in the Humanities, Cooper Senior Scholar in Arts and Sciences, Professor of Philosophy, and Professor of Law at the University of Miami. Our legal systems are rooted in rules and procedures concerning the burden of proof, the weighing of evidence, the reliability and admissibility of testimony, and much else. It seems obvious, then, that the law is in large part an epistemological enterprise. Yet, when one looks at the ways in which judges have wielded epistemological concepts, there's plenty of room for concern. In Evidence Matters, Susan Hawk brings her skill as an epistemologist to bear on a series of tangles concerning the legal concepts of proof, evidence, and reliability, especially as they apply in a series of notorious toxic tort cases. Along the way, she exposes several philosophical confusions in the law's current understandings of the epistemological concepts that it must wield, and she shows how her own distinctive epistemology, found herentism, can be useful to the law. Evidence Matters is an engaging read and a truly impressive interdisciplinary accomplishment. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Susan Hawk. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Well, great. Thank you for joining us on New Books and Philosophy. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into our podcast. Today I'll be talking with Susan about her new book, Evidence Matters, Science, Proof, and Truth in the Law. It's a fascinating examination of a series of interlocking philosophical confusions, we might call them, in the law uh, regarding um, matters uh, straightforwardly epistemological, actually. Evidence, expert testimony, the admissibility of scientific data into evidence. Um, As Susan puts it, the law is up to its neck in epistemology, and the book shows this quite well. Um, however, as Susan also argues, the law is also an epistemological mess. Um, her positive project, naturally, is to clear things up. And those of you who know her work uh, will probably agree that there's uh, almost nobody better suited to clearing things up than Susan Hawk. Um, so there's a lot to talk about. And uh, uh, this is a book that I highly recommend uh, to philosophers who are interested in epistemology, social philosophy, philosophy of law, political theory. Um, so but why don't we begin with the author, as we usually do? Uh, Susan, um, let's uh, why don't we uh, have you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to do this project? OK, well, your listeners can hear just I don't have to tell them I was born and brought up in Britain and educated <laughs> in Britain. Um, I think my first encounter with philosophy was I picked up Richard Robinson's book, An Atheist's Values, just from the library shelf while I was a schoolgirl. I found it fascinating, but I think if someone had told me it was philosophy, I would have been surprised. 
I, I didn't know what philosophy was. Well, um, eventually I went to Oxford um, at the instigation, I might say, of an inspiring history teacher hmm. um, whom a few years ago I saw again for the first time in many, many years and was delighted to discover he'd had a very successful career. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and shared, shared my enthusiasm for Dorothy Sayers. So that, oh. that was wonderful. <laughs> um, well, I was the first person in my family to go to university, so Oxford was kind of shocking. Um, also very exciting. I read politics, philosophy, and economics. Um, thinking... Politics is really interesting, uh, and discovered philosophy was even more interesting. Um, so that's how I got hooked. My first, my earliest work was in philosophy of logic, with deviant logic and philosophy of logics. Um, I have a suspicion that part of the reason that I was attracted to this was, at that point in time, a woman who did philosophy was supposed to do ethics. You know, that was supposed to be what we were good at. And the fact of the matter was, I thought and still think, ethics is really hard. So mm -hmm. there, I, there I was thinking, okay, look, logic is nice and clean. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in due course, I started teaching at the University of Warwick. And the, one of the first things I had to teach was a year-long class in epistemology and metaphysics. And that's where my work in those areas began. And after I'd been working in those areas for a while, I realized, well, you know, there are applications of this stuff in philosophy of science, which was how I wrote the next, um, next large chunk of work, Defending Science. Mm -hmm. And then, well, by a, a process which is, just shows you the role of opportunism in, in academic life, I got drawn into the law. Well, what was this process? Well, I went to a law school party at the University <laughs> of Miami for no other reason than it was in honor of William Twining, who had been chair of the law department at the University of Warwick when I was in the philosophy department there. We'd been friends. We had actually taught a class on pragmatism together where he gave the class on Holmes and I gave the rest of it. <laughs> and I go to this party and formed a conversation with somebody else. Somebody else, it turns out, teaches a class on the analysis of evidence. And I'm already intrigued, so I ask him, well, what, what materials do you use? And he said, well, no Wigmore, mm, blah, blah, blah. Twining, sure. Oh, and we use your book. You use evidence and inquiry. Me, okay, where's your office? I'm going to come talk to you properly. <laughs> um, so I showed up in his office. He gave me an enormous heap of cases and law review articles, neither of which I knew how to read. I had to learn how to read these things. Oh, sure. And I think he thought he'd never see me again. <laughs> but six weeks later, I was back saying, okay, that was fascinating. Um, I have theories. You have cases I couldn't imagine. They're so complicated, um, so tangled. I, my fingers are itching. Can I talk to your students? That's where it all began. <laughs> wow. Good story, no? 
<laughs> wonderful. Yeah. So my thanks to Terry Anderson and William Twining who got me into this. <laughs> by throwing a party. By, th- uh, uh, by throwing a party, yes. <laughs> well, that's excellent. Um, why don't we pick up there, um, because it does uh, uh, um, make a nice segue into um, talking about what's uh, sort of the backdrop of, of the book. Um, so uh, the law is up to its neck in epistemology, and... Um, uh, you've the author of a very influential uh, 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 epistemology uh, book and a, uh, a theory with a with a with a uh, unforgettable name, found herentism. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us the background just to the the broader uh, project in epistemology that your work uh, uh, is tracking, and then we'll get to talk about how uh, um, in, in evidence matters. The ongoing attempt is to show that. Your epistemic theory enables us to say sensible things uh, about the legal concepts that seem epistemic in nature. Okay, I think I should probably start by saying the way I saw it was these these cases with the enormously complex evidence um, seemed to me like a really good test of my theory. Mm. And I was prepared for the upshot, uh-oh, I've got something <laughs> horribly wrong. Um, and I did, in fact, have to make some refinements and some modifications as I went along. Um, but, okay, that said, uh, I would say my epistemological work has two strands. Um, the first concerns the theory of what makes evidence better or worse, beliefs more or less justified, claims more or less warranted. Um, that's where the word foundherentism applies. Um, It has proven, like Percy's pragmatism, ugly enough to be safe from kidnappers. (laughs) Probably a good thing. Uh, Sure. (laughs) Um, People have sometimes said, well, why couldn't you think of something better? And I say, well, could you? And the best they can come up with is codationalism, which is just as bad. (laughs) Anyway, let me see. Um, The... The initial thought there was that uh, epistemology, as it was then being conducted, was awash in false dichotomies. As as I'm sure you're aware, this is a very pragmatist thought. My my sensitivity to false dichotomies is, is distinctly pragmatist in orientation. And... Among those false dichotomies I came to believe was the traditional rivalry between foundationalism and coherentism. Uh, It seemed, and it seems to me, that both families of theories had something right and something wrong, and that it should be possible to combine the two, to combine the strengths of the two while losing the weaknesses of both. That's what the found herentist theory tries to do, because it allows uh, a real legitimate role to people's experiences of the world, as some forms of foundationalism do, but coherentism, I believe, can't. But it also allows a serious role to what I see as pervasive mutual support among our beliefs, which uh, coherentism does, but foundationalism, I believe, can't. That is to say, not without losing its foundationalist character. 
and I think, okay, there's there's an analogy um, which I use as a tool in developing the details of this theory. It's an analogy between the structure of evidence and the crossword puzzle. Right. Um, I want to emphasize that it is only an analogy. There are, of course, disanalogies. Um, unfortunately, the right answers aren't in tomorrow's paper, for example. Uh, <laughs> and um, I don't believe that there's a, someone who designed this particular crossword puzzle. Not to mention it's a good deal larger than the largest crossword puzzle in the world that they sell in airline magazines. So it's only a tool. The theory has to stand on its own feet. People have sometimes misunderstood this, but I've found it a very useful tool. Um, I should also stress that this theory is, from the beginning and all the way through, a gradational theory. Um, I might say synarchistic, if there are any Persians listening. Um, that, again, is the pragmatist influence, I guess. I'm very sensitive to the fact that evidence can be better or worse and that justification comes in degrees, you're not either justified or not. Um, that is, by the way, at the root of what I have to say about the Gettier paradox, which I really wish would just go away, but that's enough. Um. <laughs> you and I think a lot of other people, including a lot of epistemologists at yes, this point, I hope, should hope. One would yeah. hope, but it, yes. it seems it never dies. <laughs> um, now, the other strand... Um, is to do with the conduct of inquiry and especially with epistemological character, about which I have written a good deal. Um, what I've written about epistemological virtues and vices doesn't have a great deal to do with evidence matters. What I've written about the distinction between genuine inquiry and pseudo-inquiry does have a significant role to play in this new book. Um, and then, of course... There's also, also influential in this book is the work that I've done in philosophy of science, um, in the theory I call in defending science critical common sensism. So I think we can talk about that as we go along, probably. Sure. Can you, um, before we, we go, on, go on to, to introduce uh, some of the themes distinctive to this book, mm -hmm. can you just give us a quick run through, just for some of the, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the readers understand what kind of tool the crossword puzzle analogy is and how it plays out, um, but maybe not all of them do. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Could you just give us a, uh, use the crossword puzzle example to tell us how you use the analogy to talk about the familiar epistemic issues about justification and, and belief in the rest? Yes, sure. Okay. Um, I can tell you how it all started. Oh, that would be wonderful. Um, it started when I was on sabbatical in Canberra. Uh, we had no television, so in the evenings, what were we going to do? Um, we read the airmail edition of the Manchester Guardian and Le Monde, uh, which had an absolutely ferocious crossword puzzle. <laughs> and for the first time in my life, I was regularly doing crossword puzzles. And at the same time, I was writing some of the early stuff about epistemology. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night one day and saying, oh my goodness, of course the foundationalists are wrong. There can be legitimate mutual support. Just look at a crossword puzzle. That was the first thought. There is legitimate mutual support. It's everywhere in a crossword puzzle. Okay. 
And then the second thought was, hey, but look, the clues of the analogue of sensory evidence and the already completed ev- entries are the analogues of the background beliefs that serve as reasons for our other beliefs. And then I began asking myself, well, okay, what makes a crossword puzzle entry more or less reasonable? And the answer was, um, well, it depends how well it fits with the clue and any other entries that are already filled in. That's the analogue of what I call supportiveness of evidence. It depends on how reasonable those other entries are, independently of the one you're asking about. That's the basis of the independent security requirement. And it depends how much of the crossword puzzle you've done, which is the basis of the comprehensiveness requirement. So it sent me to um, a, 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 a multidimensional account of the determinants of the quality of evidence. Um, Clearly enough, because it's multidimensional, an account which won't necessarily give you a linear ordering, which turned out to be important when we got to some legal issues. Right, and it's that last, um, uh, one might say, it's that last the, the condition, the how much of the how much of the rest of you know, mm-hmm. what how much of the evidence is 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 taken into account at this point mm-hmm. that seems. Um, uh, I mean, a real insight and kind of distinctive, I, I, I take it. Um, and it's still common to see epistemologists not give that um, consideration its due, it seems to me. Yeah, and I think also they're, they're, they get somewhat hung up on supportiveness. Right. Um, right. They're not always as conscious as I think they should be about independent security. Right. And they, on the whole, as far as I know, have very little interest in comprehensiveness um, which I think is is a very difficult concept spelling it out is a nightmare (laughs) to this day I haven't completely succeeded Um, but it's a very important one I believe Um, I think it also explains why when, when Donald Rumsfeld was doing his thing about the unknown unknowns you remember that? Yes. Everybody else in the country was laughing derisively. And I was saying, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. I think he actually has an epistemological point. We don't always know what's relevant. And that means that we don't always know what we don't know that we ought to know. <laughs> That's right. Um, you see, you see, okay. Yeah. So you're not, well, let me just say for the record, mm-hmm. uh, you're not the only one who uh, thought that this was um, an actually smart thing to come out of uh, Rumsfeld's mouth. Okay, um, good. Uh, I, I will. I report to you that uh, right after it was reported that he had said that, I had a long conversation with my epistemology colleague Scott Aiken mm-hmm. about how important that distinction, <laughs> that three-part distinction, was. And then um, we, we we looked in horror as uh, it was uh, the the, everybody yeah, the thing that yeah, yeah everybody thought it was some kind of confused um, joke. But it actually uh, seemed to me to be uh, uh, one of the places where a politician got epistemology right. That's right. I've actually been so provocative as to call it the Rumsfeld insight. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great. Let me me move on. That's very helpful. Um, Let me move on then to just ask one other sort of, again, 
this is maybe just a, 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 a question before we get into the thicket of the, the legal stuff, but it, it, I think it is a, um, one important early chapter in the book that uh, I think epistemologists as such, uh, who might not care about the law at all, uh, might be interested in, in, in hearing you address, which is um, the target in, in, in the, the second chapter or the third chapter is legal probabilism, uh-huh. uh, which is a particular view about how to understand what you were talking about a moment ago, which is the, the degree of warrant for a claim. Um, and it's apparently rampant in the law, the idea that uh, degrees of warrant are analyzable in terms of mathematical probabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you make, I think, some really interesting and compelling arguments to show that, no, degrees of warrant uh, you know, the epistemic probabilities or epistemic degrees of warrant are not the same thing as mathematical probabilities. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about some of those arguments? I thought they were very, very good. Okay. Um, I think the first thing to say is that the issue is really about um, degrees of proof. Um, when, when you're talking about the law, the confusion is about how to understand degrees of proof. Um, and, of course, standards of proof. So, beyond a reasonable doubt in criminal cases, um, by a preponderance of the evidence in civil cases. And, um, as you know, sometimes the preponderance standard is actually expressed in terms of the word probable. More probable than not. Uh, Now, my my first thought is this. The word probable in English has more than one meaning. Uh, I, I like to joke that I'm bilingual in, in British and American English, but my American accent is still terrible. <laughs> uh, but uh, whenever an issue like this arises, I always go both to the OED and to Merriam-Webster's, because, of course, there are differences between the two languages. Mm-hmm. And both of them say very clearly, look, the word probable has these two quite different uses one of which is to refer to the degree of warrant of a claim by evidence, and the other of which is to refer to this mathematical concept which is used in games of chance and in statistics and so on and so on. Uh, Now, by looking at... I guess I look at two things. One is... Jury instructions, that's to say the instructions that judges are given um, to explain to jurors how to understand degrees of proof, because it's the jury who has to decide whether the evidence presented meets the standard of proof. Those jury instructions and, if you think about it, the reasons for having standards of proof at all clearly indicate that what we're talking about here is degrees of warrant and not mathematical probabilities. Uh, That degrees of warrant aren't mathematical probabilities, that you can't equate the two, of course requires a theory about degrees of warrant. And the one I use is naturally mine. (laughs) (laughs) If I thought it was wrong, I would dump it and start again. Uh, I would probably groan so loudly you could hear me from where you are without Skype, but if I had to, I would. Still, um, when I started to think about this really carefully, um, I found myself arriving at the conclusion that degrees of warrant have a very different logical profile 
from mathematical probabilities. And in the process of working this out, I think I rediscovered some arguments that were already to be found in Jonathan Cohen's work. Um, no, I'm afraid I read that only later. Mm-hmm. Um, one was simply this, that the probability, you know, okay, the mathematical probability of P and of not P must add up to one. Mm-hmm. But if you have no evidence or only really feeble evidence either way, then the degree of warrant of P and the degree of warrant of not P doesn't amount to anything. Neither of them is warranted to to any degree. You understand? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The second thought was that for independent P and Q, the, the mathematical probability of P and Q is the product of P and Q, which is always, unless they're both one, less than either. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, as I argue in a different part of the book, and as I think is is very clear from a lot of common sense examples, um, the weight, uh, the warrant given to a claim by independent independent pieces of evidence may well be higher than the warrant given to it by either. Uh, And then the third thought, um, story of my life, I subsequently discovered that this was in Keynes, but not until after I'd sweated several nights working it out, (laughs) Um, was that given that there are, if I'm right, three determinants of evidential quality, and therefore three determinants of degree of warrant, there's no guarantee of a linear ordering of degrees of warrant, whereas mathematical probabilities, of course, do come in a different linear ordering. So they simply have different shapes. And then I want to add one thing to this, because I'm sometimes, no, I think two things, because I'm sometimes misunderstood on both. Um, This is not in the least to say that statistical evidence of one kind and another doesn't play a very important role in the law. Of course it does. That's one thing. Um, It's only to say its role is as one piece of evidence among others. And it doesn't simply swallow the whole idea of degree of proof. Uh, and now, of course, I've forgotten what the other thing was. Why don't you keep going and it will come to me? <laughs> sure. Um, so th- that's, th- that's helpful. Um, the, uh, th- a large chunk of the book is um, focused on various um, uh, ways in which a series of um, toxic tort cases have wielded the concept of evidence and the admissibility of evidence in the case of science and scientific data and testimony. Um, and one of the, the keys that keeps uh, returning throughout the discussion in evidence matters uh-huh. is this series of, of uh, rulings uh, with respect uh, to a case called Daubert. Do- and the ways in which uh, Daubert has revised our understanding of, or rules even, of evidence. Um, so before we get into uh, what I want to talk about, which is just two or three of the, of the, 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 the real peculiar um, epistemological uh, uh, confusions uh, that turn up in the law as a result of the, the Daubert ruling, um, maybe uh, we can ask you to just uh, talk a little bit about the case and um, 
how the Fry rule was superseded by Daubert and then how this was all impacted at the, the level of the federal rules of evidence. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, okay. First, there was Fry. Um, Fry is a 1923 um, criminal case. It was a second-degree murder case. Involved a defendant who had at one point confessed. Part of the folklore about Mr. Fry is that he thought if he confessed, he would get half the reward for identifying the culprit. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it's a great story. Um, subsequently, he withdrew the confession, and his attorney had him take what was then a very new and very primitive lie detector test. And then the question before the federal court in Washington, D.C., was whether this very new scientific testimony should be admitted. And the very short ruling was, no, it was too new, and such completely novel scientific testimony should be admissible only if it was sufficiently established to have gained general acceptance in the field to which it belongs. Um, courts mostly forgot the sufficiently established to be, but in due course, the Fry Rule, the rest of it, um, sort of spread across the country, a bit like mildew in my bathroom, until at one point it was, it was probably the rule in the majority of jurisdictions. And then in 1975, the federal rules of evidence were ratified. And federal rule 702, which was about expert testimony, that's to say broader than Fry, but including what Fry includes, said that um, such testimony was admissible provided that it was relevant and not otherwise legally excluded. So for a considerable period, nobody really knew whether or not Fry had been superseded. And then the Supreme Court took an opportunity to answer this question um, in Daubert, um, which was one of a whole raft of cases involving a morning sickness drug, Bendectin, um, alleged to be teratogenic, to cause birth defects. Uh, why did they pick Daubert of all these cases? Well, there was a very clear reason. It was a very, very rare case in which the lower court had appealed to the Fry rule in excluding the plaintiff's expert testimony. Mm-hmm. So the core of the Supreme Court's ruling in Daubert is simply federal rules of evidence, especially federal rule of evidence 702, does supersede Fry. Federally, Fry is gone. Uh, But Justice Blackmun, who writes the ruling for the majority, goes on to say a lot more. Okay, so everybody agrees. The court's unanimous. The federal rules supersede Fry. Moreover, they're unanimous that this doesn't mean that judges don't still have a responsibility to screen proffered expert testimony Um, and indeed that they have a a responsibility to screen it not only for relevance but also for reliability Mm -hmm. but Justice Blackman goes on to write at length about what that might involve and it's in those dicta about 
what might be involved in determining whether or not profit expert testimony is reliable, that all the philosophically exciting muddles come up. Um, I might say, um, I was amused to see Justice Rehnquist in a partial dissent says, well, of course I agree with you about Fry and I agree with you about judicial gatekeeping, but I don't understand much of the rest of this and I suspect federal judges won't either. <laughs> That's why I, I say at the, at the head of one of the pieces in this book, you, know, you, might, you might think of this as an articulation and a partial defense of some ideas in Justice Rehnquist's dissent. Right, mm -hmm. right. Um, so why don't we pick up on that? Because one of the things um, that uh, in, in the, the, the clarification that we, we get in the majority ruling in the, in the Daubert uh, case is this very strange appeal uh, to, of all people, Karl Popper as the source of a conception of the reliability of data and testimony. Um, now, I take it most of our listeners will already have heard what's peculiar about that, but why don't you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that bit? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I, I think there are two large confusions in the Dalbert ruling, which is probably of interest to your listeners. Um, Justice Blackman starts by saying, well, you know, we want, we want this testimony to be reliable. Well, what does that mean? Well, it should be genuinely scientific. Well, that's already a model. Um, it, it, it seems to me perfectly obvious when you think about it that not all scientific testimony is reliable. And not all reliable testimony is scientific. So there's a confusion of scientific and reliable. Um, in fact, you can see in this ruling there's the influence of that, that honorific use of science. As you know, do you have any scientific evidence for that? Meaning, have you got any good evidence for that? It's a sort of advertising use of the word, which I would abolish if I had the power, but <laughs> I don't. Uh, okay, that's the first confusion. Well, having made that confusion, Justice Blackman kind of casts around for, you know, anybody got a criterion of the demarcation of science? Well, yes, Karl Popper. Um, and this is how Popper, who, by the way, is also pretty thoroughly confused with Karl Hempel. You know, <laughs> um, well, they're both named Karl. Yeah. Yeah, well, they're both named Karl, and... <laughs> If you don't understand what's distinctive about Popper's philosophy of science, which I don't believe Justice Blackman did entirely, then, you know, they both say, well, you know, scientific stuff should be testable. And if you don't realize it doesn't mean the same in Hempel's mouth as it does in Popper's, then this is not so uh, difficult a, a muddle to understand, but it is, of course, a muddle. Um, I'm afraid I once had terrible trouble with a copy editor because I wrote in one piece, um, the Supreme Court's got its Hempels and its Poppers all mixed up. And they kept correcting it, and I kept uncorrecting it. <laughs> it took about six tries to get it right, but okay. Um, where did the allusion to Popper come from? Um, I know, I think, a certain amount about this. There's, there are a lot of amicus briefs in Dalbert. Um, a lot of um, people, I mean, a lot of institutions, um, 
Chemical Manufacturers Association, the New England Journal of Medicine, etc., etc., etc. They all write in with ideas about how this decision should be made. And I was quite stunned to discover um, what terrible, terrible misunderstandings of what Popper actually said there are in all of those amicus briefs. (laughs) And there were also a couple of articles in the law reviews um, around the time of Galbert, which also presented um, misunderstandings of what Popper actually said. So if you look at the history, if you look at the things that Justice Blackman and the, the clerks working for him would have been reading, it's not entirely surprising. Um, there's also another really interesting little um, historical twiddle here Um, Popper as you know uses the word corroboration for the condition of a theory which has been tested but not yet falsified Uh, in the early days um, because his, his English I guess in the early days wasn't as good as it subsequently became Uh, Carnap, who had translated some things of his, translated the word that he had used and would later translate by corroboration, by confirmation. Hmm. Disastrous, of course. Sure. Uh, Eventually, Popper realized that it was disastrous, and there's a footnote in the Logic of Scientific Discovery, English edition, which explains that it's disastrous. But unfortunately, he has an early paper which was reprinted in Conjectures and Refutations which contains this mistaken translation of corroboration. And wouldn't you know, that's the paper that (laughs) the Supreme Court picks up on. The one with this mistranslation of Beveron, which was Popper's word. Mm. Confirmation. So there are all sorts of interesting things feeding into this confusion. Uh, I might say one of the things that I, I, feel, I feel kind of ambivalent about it, but it was a very useful exercise. When I wrote about what Popper actually said and why, if you were, re- if you were looking for a philosophy of science less suitable to explain reliability, you couldn't do better than pick up Popper. <laughs> uh, because I was writing this for a legal journal where... Well, the convention is you say absolutely nothing without a footnote to nail it down. Mm. Uh, I had to read Popper more carefully than I had ever done in my life. And now in that work, um, all the claims he makes which lead me to the conclusion that his philosophy of science is in the end a form of disguised skepticism. All, All of these things have to be nailed down by a footnote which gives both a quotation and a very specific reference. And I now feel a certain satisfaction. He can't escape. (laughs) Um, He really did say all those things, and here's where and here's how. That's right. That's right, which is, it was no fun to do. (laughs) I get a lot of satisfaction out of having done it. (laughs) 
Right, and the the, the 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 what makes it such a what makes Popper such an implausible sort of anchor for uh, um, uh, Blackman's sort of uh, criterial interest is um, it winds up uh, in the legal case not really being a matter of demarcation at all, um, but a conception of what makes something reliable. And the the Popper view is nothing's reliable. Nothing in know? science is reliable. That's right. <laughs> um, I once went went all the way through the logic of science scientific discovery looking for the word reliable. Um, it occurs a few times, but always in scare quotes. As in, I don't care whether a scientific theory is bleh, reliable, waving his <laughs> fingers in the air. Bleh, I care about whether it's falsifiable, how much content it has. That's right. right. Yes, so big muddle, um, interestingly followed up in the federal court. Um, only I only found one where I was absolutely confident the judge had actually read at least one page of Popper. And interestingly enough, many of the courts who tried to apply this actually misinterpreted Popper in a way that was a good deal more plausible, I think, than Popper's own philosophy of science. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one of the so one of the the the, the sort of epistemological uh, confusions that comes out of this series of rulings then is there's a conflation between reliability and properly scientific or mm-hmm. um and um there's also a confusion about what you know whether reliability is to be understood and or how that's to be understood mm-hmm. um but later uh, I, in one of the subsequent sort of uh, uh Daubert rulings with the uh with appeal comes up this um uh reference to peer review um that that's a marker of some kind of um either um, uh, that's a marker of, uh, mm-hmm, of, of it being scientific or a marker of its reliability. Um, and you've got a, a, a really nice chapter, sort of a note to lawyers about, mm-hmm. about the peer review system. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that aspect of the, of the confusion as well? Sure. Um, this, this was actually in the Daubert ruling itself, mm. and it came from earlier stages of the Daubert case. It was sort of built into the Supreme Court ruling from earlier versions. And it comes up again when the case goes back to the Ninth Circuit on remand. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea was that if, if scientific evidence is based on work which has survived the process of peer review and publication, then that's an indication of its reliability. Uh, The trouble with this thought, I believe, is peer review is ambiguous in a key way. Um, It might refer to the process by which a scientific paper gets accepted for publication, in which case it's relatively easy for a judge to determine whether or not a paper is peer-reviewed, relatively easy. Or it might mean the paper has been published, it's been out there, um, people have tried to, to build on the results it claims to have got, and it survived this process of long-run scrutiny in the relevant scientific community. Uh, that, it's impossible for a judge to determine. There's no way a judge can know whether this work will survive. Um, if he could, we wouldn't need to do the work. Right. <laughs> like scientists wouldn't need to do the work. 
And I think that Albert Ruling sort of half admits this, but in the process um, perhaps conveys to some courts the unfortunate idea you just have to ask whether or not this paper was peer-reviewed before publication. And that will give you a sense of whether or not it's reliable. And I wrote that paper in part because, um, having done a bit of digging around about the history of the peer review process, how it actually works in the sciences at this point in time, um, I'd reached the conclusion that at least many legal players are very naive about this process. Um, I suspect some of them think that a peer reviewer actually repeats the experiments reported in the article they're peer reviewing. Um, perhaps, having, perhaps having no notion of how much time and how much money that would require. Sure. And I think um, by no means all of them understand you know, um, how, how busy the people are who, who do this peer reviewing, um, how much of what they say is a matter of, look, you know, you've really got to clean up the format and this table is unintelligible and blah. <laughs> um, but also, I think, um, it was important to say, uh, you have to understand, not, every, not, not everything that's published in a peer review paper is peer reviewed. Some of the things that are published in peer so-called peer review journals have been invited and sometimes uh, in a scientific journal, the author may be asked, who would you like to peer review this? Well, it actually happened to me when I published in the American Journal of Public Health. <laughs> An astonishing invitation. Who would, who would suggest someone who's going to say, no, don't publish it? <laughs> right. um, and I think not many people, at least at the time I was writing this stuff, seem to have much sense of how this peer review system may be corrupted. Um, there is one very, very interesting Daubert ruling. Um, it's a 1986 ruling by Judge Bernstein in Bloom versus Merrill Dow, where I think the Blooms must have had really, really good attorneys because... Somehow or other, they brought to the judge's attention that, for example, one of the journals where a good deal of the stuff was published, um, apparently showing that the drug was harmless, was actually edited by someone who'd been on in retainer time by Merrill Dow for 18 years at the time of this case. Uh, and the, the author of another study that the, the defendants were citing had written to Merrill Dow asking for support because he thought this might be useful in court, and so on and so on. Um, so that you get some sense from that case of how, in some instances, uh, peer-reviewed literature might be created by one of the parties that has an interest in uh, ongoing litigation, which is very disturbing. That's right. Um, I might say... When I taught scientific testimony in the law school last year, um, I gave the students a little assignment 
uh, to, to look at the Daubert factors, explain what they are, and tell me which one you think is most helpful. And several of them said, oh, I think the one about peer review is the most helpful one. Um, that makes sense. And then one of them, when he came to write his term paper, said, I'm going to write it about peer review. I think this is a great idea. And a couple of weeks later, he showed up in my office saying, oh, my God, I was so naive. I've just looked at what really happened. <laughs> it's not what I thought at all. <laughs> and it was he who found a very recent article by a medical scientist. It's in Science last year. Um, John Bohannon, I believe his name is, submitted 307 versions, I think it was, of a spoof article, um, manifestly bullshit to anybody with a knowledge of high school chemistry, to 300 odd journals, half of which promptly accepted it. Um, so I would have to say it's even worse than I thought it was. This, this system is, I fear, under immense pressure because there is so much pressure to publish and so many people with so little time to do this work um, that it's, it's not really the kind of safeguard that we hoped it was. I'm afraid I used to think it was a lot, lot better in the sciences than it is in philosophy. <laughs> um, but now I think that was naive on my part. <laughs> uh, right. It's probably better, but it's not a lot better. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so, and, but let me just, one thing that, that, that you mentioned a couple of times in the book is that there have actually been cases where, um, because of the comments about testability and peer review, um, judges have actually let in testimony that's, that's been refuted. Oh, okay. There is, you know, there is one really. I mean, it's it's a it's a very funny case. I I can't even tell my students about it without cracking up. But to be fair, it's one of the very very early post Dalbert cases. It's you know, one of the first cases where a federal court has to apply Dalbert. It's the same year as Dalbert. They're still reeling from this big shift in the federal landscape about scientific testimony. Um, it's a case, um, it's a criminal case where the testimony at issue, the testimony, the admissibility of which is at issue, is DNA identification testimony. Um, it's US versus bonds, by the way. Uh, this was relatively early in the history of DNA identification testimony. The first time such testimony was admitted in court in this country was, I believe, 1987 in a Florida case. So this court's dealing with two quite new things, Dalbert and DNA identification testimony. Well, the defendant had argued that there was reason to believe that at this point in time, the FBI's laboratory, which made DNA identifications in this instance, made a lot of mistakes. There were a lot of things wrong with the laboratory. That was, in fact, true. 
I'm afraid the judge argued, well, let's see. What Daubert says is we have to look to see whether this testimony can be and has been tested. Well, yes, it can be and it has been tested. So, okay, it's admissible. Ignoring the fact that it had been tested and had been found to be horribly unreliable. So, yes, this is wonderfully ironic. Um, I don't know another case like it. I can't. Well, I'm glad to say I don't think this was ubiquitous across the legal system. It was just. Oh, that is good. News. It's just one, one <laughs> hilarious ruling among many, many, many. <laughs> but yes, okay. That's right. um, well, let's move to um, some of the later uh, uh, chapters where you're interested in. One of the other sort of uh, implications of at least the way in which uh, Daubert gets interpreted, um, which is a kind of uh, some of the language of Daubert, uh, uh, you claim, um, uh, encourages a kind of atomism about Mm -hmm. reliability of evidence Mm -hmm. uh, and precludes, we might say, a... uh, uh, what sounds like a you know, commonsensically a more sensible idea about how um, you know different pieces of evidence can combine and the combination of different strands of evidence can uh, you know can result in a greater degree of warrant for a claim mm-hmm. than any of the mm-hmm. the, the uh, individual uh, elements uh, allow. Um, so you've got a, a couple of the later chapters uh, are about this idea of. Um, combining evidence, the force of combining evidence, particularly with respect to uh, um, evidence about cause or causal evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the both the, the sort of atomism about uh, reliability that is uh, encouraged by some of the language in Daubert and then some of uh, y- y- your own uh, uh, views about this? Okay, I would say it's, it, it's, it's more a matter of precedence in Dalbert and since Dalbert than exactly its language. Um, Mm -hmm. There's nothing overtly um, obliging judges to look at proffered scientific testimony piece by piece in Dalbert. However, when the case goes back to the Ninth Circuit on remand, Judge Kaczynski does exactly that. He looks at each piece of proffered plaintiff's expert testimony one by one, um, saying, okay, well, this one's irrelevant, this one's irrelevant, this one's irrelevant, this one's... Oh, this one's, this one's relevant, but unfortunately it has no methodology to speak of, ergo it doesn't have a reliable methodology. So they're all excluded, so summary judgment for the defendants, again. And you see the same thing in the next case in line, in what's now called the Dalbert Trilogy, the next case in line from the Supreme Court which is General Electric versus Joyner. And in that case, the issue about what um, in those days was called weight of evidence methodology, otherwise known as woe, (laughs) 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 that comes to the surface explicitly. Um, Mr. Joyner worked as an electrician for a city in Georgia, Um, One of his jobs was to take apart those big transformers, clean them, put them back together again. They're insulated with oil, which stops them from overheating. The oil turns out to be contaminated with PCBs, polychlorinated biphenols, um, which are notoriously carcinogenic. Um, They'd actually been banned since 1978, so that wasn't really the issue. Uh, 
Mr. Joyner got lung cancer at the age of 37, which is very young, and believed that this was the result of occupational exposure to PCBs. Well, naturally, there weren't any direct epidemiological studies of the toxic effect of PCBs because they'd been banned for decades at the time of the case. But you couldn't ethically conduct such a study. You can't expose some people to this and see what happens because we know it's toxic. So he produced a conjury of evidence about you know, um, other, other studies of, of things chemically similar to this, right, a whole big heap of stuff. And the defendants, GE, who had seized on a then recently published book about fallacies in epidemiology, um, claimed that what Joyner was giving you was simply a great big pile of weak evidence. And if you had a great big pile of weak evidence, that was all you had, a great big pile of weak evidence. And it didn't matter how big the pile was, it wouldn't get any stronger. Um, they called this, um, because this was the, what the book in question called it, most unfortunately, the faggot fallacy meaning if you have a whole big heap of twigs, that's all you've got. A whole big heap of twigs, it doesn't turn into something stronger. Um, I think the thought that informed this idea in the book was, if I have one bad epidemiological study, it's a bad epidemiological study. If I have two bad epidemiological studies, neither of them gets any better because I've got two. Right? right. And if I have 37, ditto. Um, that's true, but it misses the point, which is whether or not combined evidence may, in certain circumstances, give greater warrant to a conclusion than any of the component pieces by itself would do, and if so, in what circumstances and why. You understand? Mm -hmm. um, that's an epistemological question of just the kind to make my fingers itch. Um, I'll say by way of preliminary, it strikes me if you think about this independently of cases like Joyner, the answer to this question, the answer to the first part of the question is obviously yes. Of course combined evidence can sometimes have more weight than any of the components by itself. And indeed the law itself acknowledges this in other circumstances. You know, did the defendant have means and motive and opportunity? Well, that, that's a lot better than if you just have only the one. So we get this increased weight of combined evidence elsewhere in the law. But somehow or other, the legal system has difficulty with it in these cases where the key issue is about causation. So what I do is put my epistemological theory to work uh, to answer this question, having you know, intuitively arrived at the common sense conclusion, well, the answer is yes. Well, if my theory is right, what would have to be the case for the answer to be yes? Well, if the three dimensions uh, that determine evidentiary quality are supportiveness, independent security, comprehensiveness, then 
Combined evidence can warrant a claim to a higher degree than any of the components individually if it increases supportiveness and or increases independent security and or increases comprehensiveness. So far, so good. Um, It turns out not to be quite that simple. This was one of the places where the theory needed tweaking um, and where I'm grateful to the legal system for making me tweak it. Um, It turns out, as I was sort of vaguely aware before but hadn't been fully articulate about, the independent security um, condition, of course, is asymmetrical because a conclusion is more warranted the more independently secure the favorable evidence is, but the less independently secure the negative evidence is. Right? right? Um, and moreover, comprehensiveness isn't going to increase warrant if you add more evidence, but it's less favorable than what you had already. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all of this had to be worked out in very considerable, tedious detail. I shouldn't have said tedious. I don't put anybody (laughs) off. Um, I found the part about independent security extremely challenging. It took me a long time. Um, And the first time I presented tentatively something on this matter, I think I got it wrong, but I think I've got it right eventually. You Um, You really can improve independent security, even though you can't make that epidemiological study any better. Right. Yes. Right. Um, can, but let me ask then about the, uh, uh, the 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 business and the law about doubling the risk in these causal uh-huh. cases, yes. where there's a oh. sort of rule or, or understanding about you know if if the risk is doubled, uh, then um, uh, then something uh, we have greater warrant for a causal uh, uh, conclusion than we otherwise uh, would. Um, you resist this? Oh, not quite. Okay, let's let's okay. back up a little bit. First of all, um, we're talking now about specific causation. Um, If you're trying a toxic tort case, you're the plaintiff. Uh, You have to establish both general causation. Um, This stuff to which my client was exposed can cause this disorder which my client has now got. And specific causation, that's to say you have to be able to, to give evidence that this is what caused this plaintiff's disorder. Still with me? Yep. Okay. Now, the idea entered the legal system. Let me back up a little. Proving specific causation is very hard. If you think Mm -hmm. about it, it's really difficult. You can't do it by, you can't straightforwardly do it by epidemiology because that's about a population, not about an individual. So it's it's a very tricky question, specific causation. And in the aftermath of the swine flu epidemic of 1976, um, it's amazing what you learn about when you go digging into legal history. Um, One court got the idea, well, look, if the plaintiff can show, um, and you can do this epidemiologically, that those persons who were exposed to substance S are more than twice as likely to get disorder D than those who were not so exposed, then maybe that's necessary, maybe it's sufficient to show 
that in this instance, this was what caused the plaintiff's disorder. You following me? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being, well, more than half the cases will be like that. Right? <laughs> it was that simple. Okay. Um, this thought spread gradually, not as fast as the mildew in my bathroom, but gradually. It's kind of a convenient idea when you think about it. Proving specific causation is very hard, and this makes it significantly, apparently, easier. And then, Judge Kaczynski used this idea in his ruling on remand in Dalbert, um, arguing that since most of the plaintiff's experts didn't even claim that there was a more than doubled risk of birth defects in the baby if the mother had taken bendectin while she was present, while she was pregnant, then their evidence wasn't even relevant and therefore wasn't admissible. <laughs> well, that case was, of course, enormously influential because it was the final ruling in Daubert, which is the landmark case on scientific testimony. <laughs> and in consequence, this idea that uh, showing of doubling of risk might be um, a good requirement on admissibility then spread like wildfire through the federal court. Um, I might say there have always been courts who have resisted this. Um, some of them on policy grounds, very reasonable policy grounds, I might add, um, Judge Jack Weinstein, for example, who is a very influential, important federal judge, um, saw early on, look, if you, if you take this as your test, um, first of all, you're going to be compensating a whole lot of, you're going to be compensating a whole lot of people who weren't really injured by the stuff. Mm -hmm. This is crazy. He's right. Okay. Now, I think that this is a particular instance of the confusion of the two uses of probable that we encountered earlier in the book. Right. right. Uh, uh, an identification of the statistical idea of more than doubled risk with the idea of proof by a preponderance of the evidence, which is, of course, the standard in these cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I first of all argue at some length using some of the apparatus from earlier that uh, th this test is neither necessary nor sufficient for proof of specific causation. Um, and that it's not necessary requires the following thought, which I believe our toxic tort system ought to keep firmly in mind, which is that some drugs or some pollutants, etc., um, some people are much more susceptible to than others. They don't, right. they don't necessarily affect everybody equally. And we ought to allow for the possibility that even though there isn't a more than doubled risk in the general population, this plaintiff can show that he or she has a specific weakness of some kind, which makes mm -hmm. him or her more susceptible. Okay. And the other, the other moral I would like to get across is that any increase of risk is 
some indication that there may be a causal connection. It's perfectly true that the, the greater the increased risk, the more plausible that conclusion. Um, but we ought to take seriously any increased risk if there's some possibility that the plaintiff can produce other evidence showing their susceptibility. Mm-hmm. You, you understand what I'm yeah. saying here? Um, I, I, you know, <laughs> uh, I think what this, this tells us is that if, you know, suppose, suppose we were to do this. Suppose the legal system were to get more sensitive to this sort of issue. Um, you know, of course, look, if you can show that the risk if you're exposed to this stuff is 200 times the risk if you're not, then that's pretty strong evidence of causation by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not making this up. That actually is the relative risk of scrotal cancer if you work as a chimney sweep. <laughs> <laughs> I always advise my male students on no account, <laughs> however bad the market in legal jobs, to take such a job, <laughs> because it's deadly. But still, we should take all increased risk to mean potentially something, right? And we should look for specific susceptibilities. And as as medicine becomes more sophisticated, I think we're learning more and more. Some some medications work for some people and not for others. Um, Presumably, some of them are more dangerous to some people than to others also, and so on. So... I'm inclined to say that this is, uh, I guess it's a, little, it's a little brave for a person of mere theory like myself. You remember <laughs> that, that lovely quotation from Bradley at the, the outset of one of the chapters? Yes. Yes, right. In the, in the sphere of practical matters, a person of mere theory is an useless <laughs> and dangerous pedant. I particularly <laughs> like an useless for some reason. Um, I'm tempted to say, you know, in these, I think this shows that better epistemology would also be better policy. Right. Um, well, let me ask one, one, you've been very generous with your time. I want to ask one more question about the book because um, it, it, it was a little bit earlier in the book and um, uh, I wanted to make sure we got to the, the, the specific causation stuff. But um, there is a wonderful chapter about um, so-called litigation-driven science. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you make some very uh, helpful distinctions between uh, – uh, inquiry and sham inquiry and advocacy uh, in your discussion of the the dangers of science driven by litigation, mm-hmm. either as protecting against litigation or uh, 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 defending uh, companies once mm-hmm. litigation mm-hmm. has begun. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that? Because that does sort of uh, reconnect with that second prong of your epistemological work, which is about the conduct of inquiry. That's right. That's right. right. Um, Yes, and that's, that work on the conduct of inquiry is, is itself influenced by Peirce, who, as I'm right. sure you know, <laughs> has a distinction between genuine inquiry and pseudo-inquiry, um, which in Manifesto of a Passionate Moderate, I developed into a distinction between genuine inquiry, um, sham inquiry, that's Peirce's word, inquiry where you've already decided on the conclusion before you hmm. start, and what I called fake inquiry, which is inquiry where you've already picked on a conclusion and you really don't give a damn whether it's true or false. Um, you just think defending it will make you famous. Okay, well, in this context, we are talking about sham inquiry. 
Um, I think the distinction is, like so many, a distinction of degree. There's probably no absolutely pure inquiry, and there's probably no absolutely impure sham inquiry. But there is inquiry which is more and less affected by the desire to come up with this result rather than that. And um, I reserve the phrase advocacy research for um, the kind of investigation which is consciously undertaken with what evidence can we find in support of this policy or in support of this conclusion. Um, this idea um, achieves its importance in our legal system, I think, again, in significant part, through Judge Kaczynski's ruling on remand in Daubert. Very influential piece of work, um, written with tremendous energy and skill, um, and I think, <laughs> uh, at bottom, quite confused, but that's a whole <laughs> other issue. Um, Judge Kaczynski notices, and it's, it's perfectly true, that all the scientists who are willing to testify on the Daubert's behalf have undertaken their work, um, as it were, after the event, after the, the Vendectin litigation has begun, um, and would not have done this work had there not been such litigation. So it is... In, in a clear sense, litigation-driven. Mm -hmm. And he suggests, I think not without justice, that science which is so um, driven may be um, inherently likely to be of lower quality than less, less reliable than science, which is conducted in the ordinary way of scientific business. That's the thought that he expresses. Um, I think that's true. Um, I think with Percy's help, I can show why it's true, uh, why um, somebody undertaking research in that spirit will probably be less thorough, less critical, and so on, than someone not operating in that spirit. Mm -hmm. But I think there are some problems with the use that he makes of it. Um, the first is that, of course, plaintiff's science in these toxic tort litigations is in the nature of the case likely to be litigation-driven. I mean, why, why would they have done it until they got injured? <laughs> right, right. Um, and it's rather easy to forget that it's also possible that a drug manufacturer's or a chemical manufacturer's work before they market a drug or a chemical, or indeed post-market research, may also be done with an eye to litigation. Um, so if you look at the dates of the studies being cited about bendectin, um, you'll, you'll soon find that some of them are conducted after bendectin was withdrawn from the market in 1984. Mm 
Um, and these are clearly in, intended, at least in part, um, to produce more evidence so that the, the manufacturer can defend himself in court. Uh, it's a reasonable thing to do, but sure. what it means is that litigation-driven science is not a test which um, uniformly works against plaintiffs as opposed to defendants in these cases. That's the simple point. Mm -hmm. um, and that said, I also have considerable reservations about a, a footnote in Judge Kaczynski's ruling. Um, he recognizes, of course, that forensic science in criminal cases is indeed litigation-driven. And if there weren't crimes, we wouldn't need forensic science. <laughs> if there weren't crimes in the criminal justice system, we wouldn't need forensic no. science. Um, but he makes an exception. Somehow or other, the fact that these are litigation-driven doesn't matter. And the argument he offers is, well, you know, these guys keep on testifying in court. They don't, they don't testify once. They testify over and over and over again. Um, as if that made them more likely to be reliable. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes me think, yes, but look... Um, the defendants often say in these toxic talk cases of the few scientists who are willing to testify for the plaintiffs, oh, they're just professional expert witnesses. Mm -hmm. They testify over and over as if this were a reason for distrusting them, not for trusting them. Mm -hmm. So I think that footnote of Judge Kaczynski sort of it opens a can of worms <laughs> and he then slaps the lid down again rather faster than I would have done <laughs> but then I sort of have a taste for cans of worms which perhaps he doesn't <laughs> well um, Susan you've been uh, um, uh, very generous with your time and I know that there's a, there's a lot more uh, really really excellent uh, material going on in the book Evidence Matters but um, uh, maybe we should um, cut it off here and uh, allow me to just ask uh, my usual parting question. Um, uh, what's on the horizon? What's your next uh, project? Uh, okay, if you ask me, what are you doing now this minute? <laughs> um, I would say finishing a paper on credulity, an epistemic vice which I'm very interested in. Sure. Um, which I'm presenting at the conference of the American Catholic Philosophical Association, um, which is the conference is about um, virtues, dispositions, habits. Um, and when they invited me, I said, please, can I do a vice? And they said, OK. Um, <laughs> I'm busy preparing classes for a new experimental course in the College of Arts and Sciences on religion, evolution, and the U.S. Constitution, right. which I'm teaching jointly with a professor of religion who's also dean of undergraduates. And it's tremendous fun, but of course it's a lot of work. Sure. And I'm reading a 450-page Spanish PhD dissertation. Whoa. <laughs> um, I'm glad to say I can, but <laughs> oh, oh, it's a lot of work. Um, longer run, well, of course... 
you know, the, one of the problems is you, you write a book like this, people want you to do more of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, there is more of the same that I want to do. But I also have you know, a significant body of work exploring issues in exploring what classical legal pragmatism could teach us in legal philosophy more generally. I see. Um, so I have a long paper about Holmes's The Path of the Law, for example, mm-hmm. and another piece presenting what I call a, a, a neoclassical legal pragmatism, an account of what I call the pluralistic universe of law. I don't need to explain the allusion to you. <laughs> William um, James. Right? Yeah, William James. Um, 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 and the neo the neoclassical qualifier is in 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 front of legal pragmatism is to um, distinguish uh, Holmes from someone like Richard Posner. Is that right? It's to distinguish what I'm doing, <laughs> um, which is calling not only on Holmes but also on Perse James Dewey. Mm-hmm. Um, from Posner, yes. Um, from the things that Rorty wrote about the law. Mm-hmm. Um, from some of the use that been, that's been made of Robert Brandom's work by legal scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of misunderstandings of pragmatism out there. Um, but my primary pur- purpose really isn't to clean those up. Um, there will have to be a chunk that does that, but... Um, if I might say so, I spent 10 years chasing after Rorty, <laughs> and I'm not spending another 10 years chasing after Posner. <laughs> um, Good for you. I, you know, there, there are other things to do. I want to be, I want to be constructive. Sure. Um, and I, I also have material about the role of logic in the law, which is, which is much in sympathy with Holmes's view, but I hope is informed by knowledge of recent developments of, in logic, of which he couldn't possibly have known. Sure. And some stuff about Holmes's ruling. Um, it's probably his most notorious ruling in Buck versus Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, perfectly constitutional for the state of Virginia to sterilize the allegedly retarded Carrie Buck. I want to understand how this fits in with what he says about the law. Uh, And I want to get people looking at the relation between what he writes about the law and his rulings in a way which I think is not quite the usual one. I think what I'm saying is there might be a book on legal pragmatism more generally in my future. (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> that sounds very exciting, uh, and I'll keep an eye out for it, and um, when it's out, um, maybe we'll get to talk to you again about it. That would be good. This has been fun. Uh, well, thank you so much, Susan, okay. for, uh, uh, for the well, time. And thank you for asking me. Sure. Take care now. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Susan Hawk of the University of Miami. We were talking about her new book, Evidence Matters. Science, Proof, and Truth in the Law, which is newly published by Cambridge University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.